I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many you know, more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Imperfect messenger. Nothing personal. Word of the day. We have a special Samson sit down. We got him. Roy Wood Jr. is here. If you have not watched, he's already laughing. If you have not watched his new special on Comedy Central called Imperfect Messenger, then what are you waiting for? Press pause, watch it, and then listen to the rest of this episode. I watched it yesterday, Roy. Welcome, Roy. How are you? I'm good. I'm good, man. Appreciate you for allowing me to be a part of your situation. Well, we met because you wanted me to be a part of your situation. And we're going to talk about Roy's job fair because that's making a difference. That entire show you do makes a difference. But if you don't mind, can we please start with your most recent special? Absolutely. Absolutely. So the first time I saw you and I we've followed each other, I followed you on Twitter, but you were just a smart Twitter follow. And then I all of a sudden I'm watching only murders in the building. And there you were like just in a car. (laughs) And I said, what is this guy doing here? And then you were gone. So then I said, I better let me check and see if this is his one credit. And then I started getting addicted to you and your routines, watching your appearances on The Daily Show. But your latest seems more personal, which is very fitting to the show I do. Was Imperfect Messenger your most personal special yet? Yeah, yeah, a thousand percent, man. It It's I mean, of course, there's all the worldview stuff in there. And, you know, like, because I'm not a guy that's ever tried to present himself as being right. I don't have the solutions. But here's another angle you may not have considered on this particular topic. Like, we got into talking about police reform, and I don't have time to dissect policy on stage. But I do know it would help if police just use regular words on the radio so that they could understand each other completely. I also feel like if you let somebody go free once a month, that's one more police supporter <laughs> that you have. If if someone's in the backseat of your car, drive them halfway to the jail, then pull over and just go, you know what? Never mind, man. You're good. Now, I don't want to spoil that anything. Once a month. <laughs> I don't want to spoil anything, but I'll tell you that your view of one piece of crack and how that can only apply to one person, it made me <laughs> smile. Because it sucks to be the person who doesn't get to smoke the crack and still gets arrested and put in jail. And your view is, hey, listen, just let that guy go. If you're unlucky enough to smoke the crack and get caught with the one crack, unless, of course, you have a hookah type bong. I was on the floor. I felt guilty laughing about that, actually. Yeah, I've never seen anybody smoke crack out of a hookah, like a group setting. Like, that would be interesting. Though, if I saw that in real life, that's probably not a nightclub I want to stay at. Isn't it the opposite? Wait, isn't that a nightclub you want to be at? No, that's there's a murder afoot. (laughs) There's a murder about to happen at this nightclub. People smoking crack out of hookahs in a group? No, sir. (laughs) How do you can you take me through your process when you know you're doing a show 
and you know you're doing an hour and you're coming up with different ideas and you're thinking about points you want to make because you're educating people. You know, you started by saying you don't take a side, but I'm not sure I agree with you. You do take a side and the side is the side of education, which means you're explaining to people, here's the here's the here's the issues. You need to come to grips with these issues and then take a stand. So I think you are doing that for people. But what what makes your show? In other words, tell me how you come up with this police idea, which is outstandingly interesting. Is that early in the process? Does it happen during rehearsal? How does that work? Yeah, I mean, for me, rehearsal is just every night in the comedy clubs. And it's just a wash, rinse, repeat of how the audience tonally responds to how you deliver a bit and how hard you want to go in, you know, on a particular bit. And so for me, you know, the bit that's probably the most personal in the special is one about um, my childhood next door neighbor was the getaway driver in a robbery that turned into a murder. He's currently in prison for the rest of his life, charged the same as everyone else that was inside the building. And it's an interesting case in the sense that I also know the victim. And so it's weird when you know the murderer and the victim. And so you have sympathy for both sides. And, you know, I had a conversation with the victim's family about trying to get him eligible for parole and without spoiling, you know, that conversation goes, uh, it's a a very topsy-turvy conversation I had. But at the core of that bit, it's not about me and my relationship with them. It's about how revenge and jail and all of that, those are all one of the many things that we use as a tool to feel good or to feel better about ourselves and to feel better about moving through the world. It's just a conversation about revenge. I just use a personal, I just attach a personal story to it to try and drive the point home. But then we also talk about Brazilian butt lifts, which people also use to feel good. So it's like there can be a contrast and you just figure out, you know, if I'm gonna use sports as an analogy, each joke serves a different purpose. So you just have to establish a batting order and you just have to figure out what joke works best in front of this joke, batting behind this joke. Or if I do this joke and this joke does well, all right, I can call an audible and do these two jokes, you know, over here as well, you know, all right, well, I'm going to talk about the police. And if they're with me on the police stuff, then okay, then now I can talk about the firefighters. And if that does well, then I can talk about the national guard. Do you stack the audience? Because in a batting order, I know very well whether I'm playing at home or on the road, it's still 90 feet between the bases and 60 feet, six inches for the pitcher to get to home plate. But when you're talking about what jokes land, isn't it depending on who the audience is and what sort of their maybe level of inebriation is, what their race is, et cetera? Yeah, hell yeah. And that's why it's important to get this act out across the country. So, you know, from February until when we shot in October, You know, I went everywhere from Tacoma to Peoria to Tampa to Austin, you know, black markets, white markets, um, as it is tradition with the Roy Wood Jr. stand up style. The week before I do a taping, I perform in Peoria, Illinois. Because Peoria is. It's geographically damn near the center of the country, but it is a place where people care less about race and more about self and just trying to survive. It is quintessential middle America. And so if the joke works there, 
then I know it's going to work everywhere else. I'm and trying so, to think of Peoria as anything. You just said if a joke works in Peoria, it works everywhere. Is that Peoria's a claim to fame? That is, I mean, I guess Richard Pryor's their claim to fame, but <laughs> his birthplace. But the club and people can juke, people can Google this so they'll know I'm telling the truth. Uh, the club is called the Jukebox Comedy Club. It's been around almost 30 years. It is next door to a strip club and across the street from a dirt track. When I tell you the type of people you think go to this epicenter of entertainment, these are not the traditional New York liberals. These are not the San Francisco avocado toast eating motherfuckers. <laughs> like this is regular ass America. I don't care nothing about no politics. I'm just here to laugh. I fix tractors all day. What jokes do you have? So if I can make that person laugh at a political issue that they normally wouldn't have had an opinion about, like I have a whole run in my show about black British actors playing black Americans in civil rights movies. Idris Elba. Yeah, Idris Elba, Yellow and Cynthia Riva, like all of these black Brits playing black Americans and just that's created a riff in the black community. Do you think they give a fuck about that in Peoria, Illinois? Do you think at a Peoria barbershop, they're going, man, can you believe these black Brits are stealing rolls from They don't care. They got to fix a tractor. So if I can make that guy laugh at that topic, then you got something because it's something he wasn't even already emotionally connected to. It's easy to get into the weeds of, oh, gun control and abortion and gay rights and people are already emotionally connected to that so it's an easier in to give your opinion and the crowd either agrees or disagrees but if i can get you to go with me on a journey of something that you hadn't considered or hadn't thought about then i think i have a joke that's more universally useful you know geographically speaking but then you you put a layer of self-deprecation on it and I'm Correct. not I don't I don't want to spoil it, but but what your view of yourself as a celebrity versus I, I guess I'm not comparing you to Kim Kardashian because that would be an insult to you. So I'm not going to do that. <laughs> but your point is an interesting one. But I think that the, your audience, Peoria, Illinois, they're not celebrities and you're trying to empower them through your comedy. So is the self-deprecation and making you look like you're just a normal guy. Is that a critical part of your comedy? Yeah, I think you have to continue to humanize yourself. You don't ever want to be above the audience. I think that's part of why comedy, in a weird way, I don't like it when comedy club stages are too high. There's some sort of subconscious superiority thing, in my opinion, where it feels, you know, like it, you ever notice when a politician speaks during election season and all these town halls and all that other shit? They're always at ground level. They always walk around the room and it's all intimate. And like that's, there's a purpose behind that. And so I think the microphone and the elevated stage kind of adds an, an air of glitz already that you have to accept that that's how you're perceived. But, you know, even if people, even if you're in a different place now, you let people know about your beginnings and your origin. In the moment I say I was raised in Alabama, then you already know what my values are and you know that I come from some very humble. I'm from the same land of barbecue and mosquito bites 
as <laughs> most everybody else in this country. Um, but yeah, that's an important part of it is just making sure that people know that there's some degree of relatability. You know, when I talk about the police stuff, I do have two cops in my family. I do hope they come home safe. I do love them both. So let's start there before I go into why police should just pull over on the side of the freeway and just let people out the backseat of their car. Does the, does the white ally bit work as in front of with black audience, white audience, Peoria, Illinois, New York City? Because that was a very interesting of part of your show. I think different parts of jokes get different laughs in different places. So if a joke, I call them mile markers, which is, you know, each punchline within a bit. So let's say a five minute bit has 12 mile markers. If we're averaging two to three laughs a minute, like if we're just going to get into like the the money ball aspect I of just it. joke of joke writing a solid joke is two laughs a minute hall of fame is four laughs a minute watch any seinfeld late night set from back in the 80s when he used to do leno before he was famous famous and you'll see quintessential four like it's that's uncanny that it's tom brady type shit when you're getting four laughs a minute consistent consistent or one huge laugh chris rock is another one Chris will get one to two laughs a minute in his hour special sometimes, but those two laughs are just cataclysmic, like seismic, shake the room type shit. Cat Williams, probably a little more present day. Um, so if a joke has 12 mile markers, let's say I go to Peoria, mile markers one, three, four, seven, and eight are the laugh in Peoria. Whereas in Atlanta, it might be two, five, six, seven, eight. You know, for certain people, certain parts of the joke are gonna feel more like a setup. And for other people, it's gonna feel like the punchline. You know, there's, because there's also parts of the jokes that what I'm trying to do in a perfect world is explain a part and an aspect of America that you may not have been privy to that you may not have even been aware of while also for the other half of the room, the black half of the room confirming what you had already thought and felt, but you just needed to hear somebody say it, you know, and when you talk about the white ally material, you know, that's rooted in just talking about, you know, the, the playful joke is because white people have t-shirts they can wear that show their political beliefs it's a much easier time now to be a nice white person than say in the nineties where black people just had to guess. And the only, if you were a good white person, all you could do is look at black people and smile, which also weirded us out. <laughs> so that's a joke that you may not have known that that makes black people. You might be a person in the audience who smiles at people all the time. And you just don't know that for some black people that it just, it's, it used your well intention, but it just, it just seems weird sometimes. So, you know, that, that. that struck me, Roy, just uh, in full disclosure, because that's me. You were, that joke spoke to me, that mile marker of that part of the show spoke to me because I, whatever reputation I have as a former president of a, of a major league baseball team, I've had more years in my life when I wasn't president of a major league baseball team, but I've always had the default setting of 
smiling because smile for me is both a sword and a shield. I'm able to Mm. smile my way as I am attacking you in a business deal or getting what I want, but doing it with a smile, whether it's while fighting with a family member like my ex-wife or whether it's with getting a deal done in baseball or whether it's getting a deal done when I was on Wall Street. But I also smile and I found myself, this is getting a little personal, but I want to ask you about this. During the pandemic and when all of the sort of social awakening, if you can even call it that, it's so embarrassing to say because of what's been going on for so long. When I'd be running, because I train for marathons and run marathons, I made sure that I was smiling extra when I would run past a black person because I noticed the tension that was going on, like Mm. during the killing of George Floyd. So I wanted I wanted everyone to know, hey, that's not me. I'm not that guy, that cop. And the only way I can let you know that is by smiling and being nice and holding the door. But I learned during your show that I may have had the opposite impact of what I wanted to do. And it made me feel like crap, actually. Well, because and I'm not saying don't smile. I was just saying, I guess for the sake of the joke, was just acknowledging how shirts and patches and masks with logos and black fists and rainbows and like these things all make life easier, you know, for people. And so for me, it was about just explaining how, like if black people just wanna be treated regular and fair and normal, then the normal thing to do when we're out is to not always smile. But what if my or normal if thing you, is I do smile? Then you should continue to be that. Like, and that's the thing. I, I didn't even get a chance to really get into the weeds of this in the special because it just ran out of time. But it's it's this it's it's funny when you look at allyship in this country where you know for a mo- for the most part white people there's no handbook on how to be better you just have to be better and then when it's time to figure out how there's not a lot of instructional tools like there's a lot of books but even to find the books you need someone to point out the books and some people are so spiritually tired in this moment that they don't have time to even verbalize how to help you help us and that's such an impasse that you know it's frustrating so that's why even within the special, I said it jokingly, but it, it, it was a point that I was trying to make in that if it's about being a better person and it's about changing everything that's going on around us, then it's about white people talking to other white people and figuring things out to some degree. You know, because when you think about the Me Too movement, okay, if you talk about the ways that men could be better and respectful of women and not creating environments where women feel unsafe, that is by and large a conversation that men need to have with one another. There are some women that are willing to help and they will give us some guidance and you know, here's a website, here's a link you could click. But it's about the conversations that men are having one-on-one away from women that will also help influence that change. You know, I didn't make that connection on stage because I didn't want to try and take agency away from, you know, me too and all of that stuff. But I do think that there is this interesting conundrum that good white people are in right now where 
you don't want to make the wrong move, but then how do you know what the right move is if nobody will fucking tell you? So you don't want to take so, agency, which is a little different than one than another special that that I actually reviewed on Nothing Personal and spent a lot of time on the Dave Chappelle most recent special and everything that he that that is going on with that. And I was curious when you're putting your mile markers together and you are moneyballing your show, which I really want to talk to you either after the show or at some point, because I'm fascinated by if you actually attack a show the way analytics would attack a baseball game. But I want to talk about Dave Chappelle with you. What, where do you stand on that special and, and his sort of his position and what he was trying to accomplish? I don't know what he was trying to accomplish as far as, I mean, I watch it as a comedian. To me, it's just a motherfucker on stage telling some jokes. Some people didn't like the jokes, which they have a right to. And I think that's the part of it where I feel like, you know, as a community, as a comedy community, and it's not Chappelle in particular, but I, you know, I follow a gang of comedians on social media and there's a lot of, there's this idea or this sentiment that because you did not like someone's jokes, you are trying to cancel them. And I think the there's been a blurred line between outrage and backlash and discourse and conversation or someone giving you one star on iTunes versus someone canceling you. He's got a right to say it, and I could never speak down his ability to be able to say those things because I know sooner or later as a comedian, I'm going to get on stage and say some shit and sooner or later my day is coming. And so I want to have the freedom to say what the fuck I want to say on stage. And so that to me still remains true. There is no comedian that has been taken out in handcuffs from a show, Lenny Bruce, George Carlin style. I have not seen it. To me, that is cancel culture. So this idea that you can't say these things. I don't think that's real. You can say these things. You have said them. And then people say things back. I think the illusion, and this is where, you know, where, you know, where my stand up kind of plays into some of this, I guess, to a degree, is in looking at the, the way, like stylistically for me, it's looking at both sides of the issue, right? And then trying to figure out the thing that I feel like a lot of people are missing in the Chappelle discourse is this fake expectation of morality from corporations. A corporation's job is to make a profit. To make a profit, they need the majority of people interested in whatever they're shoveling. And so you can demand that some company pull something down. You can demand that some venue not book a comedian and the venue either will or won't. And in the instance, there's been a lot of comedians, even pre Chappelle who have been quote unquote canceled and have been taken off of whatever show or lost whatever venue or been pulled off of whatever booking opportunity. But those companies that pulled those comedians from those productions in the name of morality, show me their diversity numbers behind the camera. Oh, I got Show me that. your diversity numbers in your boardroom. Show me that. There's zero, but and, but Roy, but let me bring you there. You know, and so that's let me bring you around though. What you're saying though, when you try out your set and you're putting your special together, you said earlier that you are you're 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 the show is evolving. And if it can play in Peoria, then it can play. 
right? You're putting you and you're putting the mile markers down. So are you saying that you don't even think about the cancel culture? You don't think about what you should be saying. You just go off the reaction of the audience. No, no, that's that's a lie. I do think about that. And as I was developing my show, there were a lot of shows where I put phones in bags. We had yonder bags at a lot of my shows over the summer. To me, my biggest fear, comedy is the only art form that's curated and created in front of the consumer. And people do not care about where you are in the creation process they will immediately go. It's like when you go to Krispy Kreme, this is a terrible analogy, but I like Krispy Kreme donuts. Krispy Kreme donuts, there's a big window where you can see the donuts being made. You can see the donut going down the conveyor belt. It gets goes through the grease. It gets flipped in the grease. It goes under the big glaze tube and the glaze come. Comedy that you're witnessing is happening at any given point from the grease to the box. And you may catch a joke that's still raw in the grease and someone will go, that's a terrible joke. Motherfucker, don't judge the joke in the grease, judge it in the box. The box being the polished hour special that is presented to the world. This is what I wanted you all to see. Criticize and think piece that to death. But what was happening, what has been happening with a lot of comedians is that when you're in the comedy clubs, it's not a place where you can no one respects the creative play to find the line. Sometimes you have to cross it. Sometimes you have to step over it and you have to figure that out. And then you figure out a way to scale it back. You know, I had a joke about the national guard that I didn't quite nail and I stopped doing it until I can figure out how to do it the right, because I'm not putting that on TV and get torn to holy hell for being painted as somebody that doesn't support the veterans, which is not the truth. And that's the whole point of the bit. But if that's not clear to people in Cleveland, Orlando, LA, and Peoria concurrently, I have to be able to perform this joke the same way in different markets and know that the same thought is being conveyed. If that's not true, that joke ain't ready. It's got to go back into Greece. So yeah, I bag phones and this that level of outrage of someone going oh well that joke is to this or to that yeah i have a concern about that but what what can i do and so obsessing over something that i can't change for me creatively feels like a waste of time so you bag phones you can give some context before you go into the joke you know it, but some people are going to perceive you the way they perceive you i got tweeted a couple of weeks, a couple of days ago, some guy asking me, why do I always talk about race? And then I went through the Comedy Central Instagram, the Comedy Central stand-up Instagram, and it was like seven clips of me. Only two were about race. The other five was just about other shit going on in the world. The majority of my material is not about race. The stuff that might be most impactful that leaves people with feeling something might be about race, but that's not my fault. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not and, as uh, simple you know, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many you know, more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. 
Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you're putting the when you're putting the show together, do you do it in counterparts? So will you stop when you're in Peoria? I keep saying Peoria, but Orlando or Cleveland. And will you get feedback from the audience that's not just based on silence or laughter? So will you ask for and receive feedback about how the donut is tasting, whether or not it needs more grease or more glaze or more time before it gets in the box? I do that. That's more of a focus group. I focus group more in New York because New Yorkers are more vocal in saying how they feel. San Francisco, too. Oh, my God. San Francisco, they will tell you. If you ask, it'll be five people. The show will stop and turn into a Q&A. Um, Little America, not as much, but, you know, how did that feel? Did that offend you? Did that feel good? Was that okay? Like, like that part of it? I can play around with that a little bit. You know, I keep coming back to the National Guard joke and essentially the joke in its iteration, and it did not make the special. <laughs> The basic premise of the joke is that the National Guard is not respected and they do all of these great things. And then I list all of the stuff that the National Guard is responsible for and they still get mistreated the same as active duty, but we don't view them as that in the country. And that whole bit is ultimately just an entry point into discussing how veterans are treated in this country. And so the joke as I had it structured the National Guard stuff works fine. And then I talk about how I like I and this is separate and apart, but I really do hate this. I do not like the way they present veterans at sporting events. I don't we're like told it. to do it's, by the way, Roy, we're told to do that just for the record. I am I'm not surprised. It's propaganda. And it and and I said this in my second special, No One Loves You. I said that we, we bring the troops to these games. We give them a round of applause and we give them good tickets and we give them free food. But the one thing they never give them is the microphone. They either bring, you bring the old, you bring the young troop back and he's just so happy to see his wife and his dog. He doesn't care. Or you bring the old vet in the wheelchair who's too old to talk. Those are the only two types of vets we see at these games. And so in talking about the National Guard, it's an entry point into discussing how veterans are treated at these sporting events, the purpose of them being at these sporting events, and how I hate the fact that they fly jets over the heads of the veterans. Like they always do these flyovers. And the joke was, I just left war. Why the fuck would you recreate war? And I'm not. There's a, there's a guy with a gun. And he's shooting to get saluting a flag. This looks like my friend's funeral. I just left like it. It really is like this. If you have any type of PTSD, this has to be triggering. Like this has to be a terrible, terrible thing to expect. Just give me the tickets and let me come to the game and point the camera to me at the seat. But why am I out here in the grass? And then you look in the dugout. All you see is heads. That looks like a foxhole. It's scary. Like it. 
it's like people are dug into a position. And so the bit, and here's the funny thing about the bit. I said, I'm more surprised when veterans come to throw out a first pitch, they don't try to pull the pin out the baseball and <laughs> lob it into the dugout and just say fire in the hole. So, well, I, first of all, the flyover is meant, I'm going to defend the flyover because that is super entertaining to the other 43,212 people. So it's very oh, much course. a John Stewart Mill utilitarian theory, which is it may be PTSD <laughs> for the two guys who got the free tickets, but man, the other 43,000 people think it's damn cool. Yes, but I just left Jets two weeks ago. <laughs> You're flying choppers over my head. Fuck you. So, so that was the base structure of the bit, right? Now, when there are veterans in the audience, they are doubled over with laughter. And I can go to a vet and I can talk to a vet. Did you serve? Have you seen that? And they nod in agreement. But going back to the cancel culture thing that you're talking about, comedy audiences, some comedy audiences have a level of empathy that your joke must overcome so that the audience feels disarmed enough to laugh at that. I never served in our military, so I don't have the agency that you need to have pre-installed to make that joke. So a lot of people don't feel like it's okay to laugh at that joke. And it also could potentially come across as me making fun of people with PTSD, which it is not. At the end of the day, which I tried to establish at the top of that joke, is that this is one of the many things I don't like that they do to our veterans when they come home, which should establish me as pro-veteran. But there is still some time, there were times in this year leading up to my special where I did that joke and I could tell, I could see people deciding whether or not it was okay to laugh at that because they were empathetic. And so, yes, it's a joke. Yeah, it's a laugh. Yeah, fucking get over yourself. The veteran's laughing. So if he can laugh, you can laugh. So I could take that stance, but if that person doesn't feel comfortable laughing at that joke, then... I've lost them for at least the next three minutes of my performance or for the duration of that joke. So now if we're talking about setting up the next joke to be able to do well, the joke in front of it's got to get on base. And so the veteran joke didn't always get on base. So I have to cut it until I can figure out, a. I have to cut it until I can figure out a more efficient way to tell that joke, or maybe it needs more cushion on the front side to really establish once you know who I am and what I really feel and what I mean, then you can get deeper into that. And that's the thing to go back to Chappelle is that a lot of this, or at least some of it in my observation, a lot of it is rooted in people that are more familiar with his material and who he is and his worth, et cetera, et cetera. So they have a different scope of where they believe Chappelle is coming from morally, where there's people who from the beginning of Chappelle's Netflix run of our specials might've written them off after the first trans joke, three, four specials ago. So when you hear about what he said in the closer, it's going to be rooted in a far less, a place of less understanding of where Chappelle might've been coming from because you don't have the same wealth of research as someone who supports him. Right. How many scouts not, do you have? Roy, because if we're going to keep going with the baseball analogy, I'm going to go till it's not funny anymore because you're looking at the audience. You're trying to judge their reaction. 
you've got the bit in your head. You know where the mile markers are. There are lights on you, yet you still have to have enough contact with the audience to see whether or not there's that cushion or whether or not the joke is landing. And all this is going on while you're doing a show. Yeah, so and you're you calling an audible on what the next joke is going to be. Right. So do you have scouts with you who are giving you notes after one of your prep shows leading up to a special who no, tell you, hey, really. did you notice what was going on? Because that National Guard bit, there was an entire 50% of the audience that lost you right there. Correct. I mean, I can feel it. I record the shows, uh, audio. Sometimes I'll do video. And then about once a quarter, I'll do video of the crowd. I, like I'll do a profile. I'll shoot the show profile. Mm -hmm. So I can see everybody's face, at least the side of their faces. And you can start seeing what jokes do what with what demo, what delivery works best. Oh, this joke didn't get a laugh when I said it slow, but when I said it fast and I didn't change the verbiage, wow, that, okay, well, we'll start doing that from now on with that line. And it's just studying Brilliant. people and figuring out. I, I think your audience what, may not realize how technical comedy is because I'm just there to laugh. I'm in the business of entertainment. <laughs> But I never realized how technical it was. And I'm, I'm totally impressed at the work you do just to make me laugh because your special certainly did that. I, I know you've given me so much of your time, but I can't let you go before we talk about one more thing, Roy. I want to talk about Roy's job fair. I think it's such an ah. important thing you do. And I need you to please tell my audience what, what you're doing and then why you're doing it. First off, you all can listen to David Sampson on the episode titled Self-Made self-made was the episode the so the show came about during the peak of the shutdown when unemployment there was about 35 million unemployed americans and a lot of people were pivoting i have a friend from from my childhood he's a cannabis lobbyist or whatever the weed you know trying to legalize weed in the state where he lives and the shutdown happened and he couldn't wine and dine politicians anymore. So he pivoted and became a gospel singer. <laughs> so <laughs> That's a pivot. Yeah. So I was very curious about that. And so we talked and the more I talked to him on the phone, the more I was like, damn, more people kind of need to hear this because I know a lot of people are, the, the pandemic was very much a it's now or never moment for a lot of our dreams and a lot of our aspirations, but also just general conversation about employment and I looked at that world within the podcasting world. There's nothing funny. There's a lot of podcasts about job market fluctuation and retirement and set up your Roth IRA, but just, hey man, what's it like being a mail carrier? Well, I still have to deliver certified letters to crack houses. Oh, tell me more, please. This is interesting. So it's a show where we just highlight everyday people and either jobs they're hiring for or bad jobs they've gone through or just moments of triumph and upliftment. So, you know, we try to be a lot of different things within an hour and I'm happy we started it. You know, we, I've learned so much about so many different industries. And, you know, we've talked to, you know, veterans that are raising money for prostate cancer. And, you know, then we also talk to women who get naked on OnlyFans. Well, what's that like? How do you sell your panties online? What? How much do you make selling panties, ma'am? Really? That's interesting. Okay, next episode, 
a Waffle House executive talking about careers in management. And then we had a woman in the world of coding who's talking about half of the jobs in Silicon Valley you could you could learn how to do on YouTube. Most of the people that work in tech are self-taught. There's some that have degrees, but a lot of that shit, if you really have the tenacity for it, you don't need a student loan. You just need a Wi-Fi connection. Are you going to keep going now that the pandemic, if the shutdown ends? What, tell me, what is, what is the arc of Roy's job fair? Yeah, I think we keep going, man. I you think have we keep to, going don't you? Because it's just, it's fun. And also we get to talk about industries that people may not know a lot about. And I think that part of the curiosity, there's something voyeuristic about it. And, you know, when I've, and I've said that, you know, work is like sex where either you're getting it or you're looking for or you're looking for something. And I think it's one of those things that's no different than food. It's the one thing that connects us, the desire to provide for ourselves and for our family and the struggles that come within that. And it's been fun. It's, you know, I, I can't say that, you know, like I'm without even being cheesy, like I think it's a fun, fulfilling thing that I think people have really gotten a lot out of. And, you know, it's, you'd be surprised how much you have in common with somebody when you realize that, you know, a lot of our goals are the same, which is to, you know, eat some food, find somebody to love and make a buck. I thought you were gonna say work is like sex and that you say you do it all day, but you actually do it for a couple of minutes. That's funny. Hey, thank you. You want to use credit. that? So you're learning a lot about industries. Last question, because you've been gracious with your time. Uh, we met and you know what I do, what I did for a living running a professional sports team. And when I was on Roy's job fair, I got the impression that you all felt that you could run a baseball team where I've never, ever assumed that I could ever be a comedian. So if you're president of a major league team, uh, what wh what's your first move? Like, why do you think that you and, and your co-hosts would be so good at it? What well, do you, you do better what, than I you do? You know what makes me arrogant and thinking I could be a front office exec is fucking Madden and MLB the show. <laughs> you Perfect. I, I remember a version of Madden. I think it was 98 or 99 where you were the owner of the team and you controlled everything down to the price of parking. It was unnecessarily immersive i had by the end of my franchise i had 12 dollars hot dogs in my stadium attendance was terrible but it sounds familiar <laughs> <laughs> um I, I i don't know man like it here's why i know i couldn't do it and i am not good i learned this from going to therapy that i am an avoidant when it comes to tough conversations and as a front office exec you have to have tough conversations every single week, every day, every week. There's every day. There's someone you've got to wave or move to a different department. God forbid you have to trade somebody. Then after you do the evil mean thing that everybody hates you for, you have to go in a press conference and explain to the media and the fans why you did. So it's not enough to just be mean. You have to explain why you were a meanie. And also, in the midst of all of that, not lose your cool, because then you're an asshole. It sounds like you're writing my biography, because that is the tightrope that, that we walk. And not everyone walks it well, because some executives have, th have thin skin, right? So if you have thin skin, mm -hmm. you can't do it because you get criticized all the time. And if you are emotionless and robotic, that's the way I chose to be. 
you, you didn't know me when I was running the team, but I was incredibly robotic. I made decisions that were solely based on business. And I explained to people during the show why I do that. And I'm going to end by saying this. What you've done for me, Roy, in the short time we've known each other, you've enabled me to see things in a way that I never saw. And my eyes have been wide open for a lot of years on a lot of issues. And I really hope you keep going and don't stop with your specials and don't stop going to Peoria and don't stop the job fair because, man, you're making a difference, Roy. Thank you, brother. I appreciate you for having me, man. Hey, it's been great. Thank you so much. Yes, sir. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.